Hey, how you doing, Blake? Good. Yourself? Good. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to see you. Good to see you too. At what altitude are you right now? <laughs> 5280. I'm in Denver. We're technically 5820 because we're in Centennial. It feels like based on your background, you could be at 52,000. Uh... <laughs> yeah, this is a little more interesting than the plain white wall behind me. How high will the plane fly when it's fully built? Up to 60,000 feet. So, and is there, there a curvature at 60,000? There, there is, yeah. So the sky is a deeper blue and you can see the curvature of the earth. That's why we got to put big windows on the airplane. Wow. Will these be the biggest windows on any aircraft? I don't know if they'll be the biggest. There are performance challenges with making really big windows, but they will certainly be the largest supersonic windows ever done. Right. That's interesting. Well, thanks for taking the time to chat. I thought it would be fun. You have such a unique company and such a unique story. I thought it'd be fun to illuminate everyone. So I guess we should start with the beginning. You were, I think, running growth marketing at Amazon. Sort of. I joined Amazon as a software engineer in 2001 when my parents thought it was a bookstore. And they were like, we got you this computer science degree. Why are you working at a bookstore? And then the really cool thing I ended up doing at Amazon was Amazon's very first ad buy from Google. And we ended up building out the automated system. This all sounds very normal now, but this was like 2002, 2003. Built out an automated system to do basically paid customer acquisition on the internet. And that turned into a $300 million P&L by the time I was 24. So I was very lucky to have that experience early in my career. So you worked at Amazon and then you started a company called Kima Labs, which was acquired by Groupon. And then you started building the next Concorde. So how did you learn to build airplanes? At what point at Amazon or Kima did you study that? Yeah, obviously it's a little bit of a non sequitur in my career. The thing I believe deeply is that passion and vision trump knowledge and experience. And if you found something you really love that you would make real, you can learn. And so you know, the story for aviation for me goes back to goes back to childhood. I've loved airplanes since I was a kid. And I've been flying small aircraft for fun since I was in college. And you know, throughout my 20s, I uh, sort of had this thought that one day I would like my passion for flight and my career to have some kind of intersection. I started reading some books on aerodynamics and I started reading airline annual financial reports to just kind of understand the industry. And then 2007, when I was working at one of the first iPhone app companies in Seattle, put a Google alert on supersonic jet and I wanted to be first to know when I could buy a ticket and go Mach 2. And for the for the better part of a decade, it was just it was just crickets. There was no credible effort to do anything that would pick up from where Concorde had left off and take supersonic flight to a more mainstream level. And the you know, fast forward nearly a decade after having spent a couple of years at Groupon, I, I can tell you there's nothing like working on internet coupons to make a year and to work on something that you really love that's going to matter to the world. And so I thought, well, let me look at all of my startup ideas in descending order of how awesome it would be if they worked and leaving aside basically everything else. And so I thought I would work down that list and I ended up working on like number three or number four. But as luck has it, I'm still working on number one. And it was this experience of like, okay, let me get two weeks into the research and I'll, I'll understand why no one else is doing it. But instead found a whole bunch of stale conventional wisdom that didn't stand up to a, a simple three-line spreadsheet you could build with inputs that were published in Wikipedia. That people thought that you had to you had to charge a huge premium for speed. People thought you had to solve the sonic boom problem or have a viable product. People thought you either have to be a tiny supersonic private jet for the ultra wealthy 
which we didn't have the technology for, or it had to be a 300-seat supersonic jumbo, which we also didn't have the technology for. And it turns out none of that's true. And so, and once I once I sort of realized that this space was more fertile than it looked, I got really serious about learning. Went did the Khan Academy physics class because I hadn't had any physics since high school, and took an airplane design class and read textbooks, and then started meeting people to kind of you know, test test ideas against people who knew a heck of a lot more about airplanes than I did. And so you started the company in 2014. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, we t- we turned six about a month. Congratulations. And so you started the company in 2014. How do, do you convince anyone to give you money to build a supersonic airplane with the background that you had? With great effort. It was very difficult to get the first money together. My first company uh, had made money for its investors and some people were happy with it. And they said, Blake, we'll invest in anything you ever do. And I called them back and told them what I was doing. And about half of them said yes. And half of them said, well, we said anything, but we didn't think you'd go do something that crazy. And so I think the smallest check I ever took was $500. And we raised, by the end of 15, we'd raised about 700K, a good piece of which I had to put in myself. And then we did Y Combinator. And some important things happened while we were in YC. Most importantly, that we got a deal together with a Virgin Group to pre-order 10 aircraft or $2 billion. And that significantly changed the credibility and investability of the company. And so we kept finding ways to convince people that we were real. And then you would basically raise some money, go accomplish something important, and then raise some more money and accomplish something else important. Lather, rinse, repeat, and eventually you got a super time chat. What was your first significant investor? First investor was John Collison. And he and my CTO and I had gone out to dinner and we were talking to him about this. And this was like early to mid-2015. And John said, well, I'll write you a check tonight if you'll just promise me I'm first. And I didn't have to think too long and hard about that one. And what do you think John saw in you? I think he saw an idea that he really wanted to be real and a fairly pragmatic plan to actually make it happen. Not a boil the ocean plan, but a one foot in front of the other. Here's why this isn't just a dream, but here's why this could actually work. And then another thing I've heard, I don't want to put words in John's mouth on this, but a thing I've heard from other investors is who put money in in that time frame where they thought Boom had about a 1% chance of success, but they saw in me someone who would never stop and was incredibly passionate about it and would run through whatever wall was required to get it done. I think that inspired some belief. I also remember the Paul Graham pitch because he invested on Demo Day. And his view was, so when you guys succeed at this, you'll be worth something like three times Boeing because you're going to be so much more efficient than Boeing. At the time, that was like $200 billion. And if you have even a 1% chance of accomplishing that, that means the company's worth $2 billion right now. And you're selling me shares for $20 million. Therefore, this is the best investment I've ever made. And I was like, that's, that's great. Can I quote you on that, Paul? And so where was this dinner with John? Somewhere in San Francisco. I wish I could remember exactly where it was. But I'd met John through a friend. And he and I had talked on and off before he was ready to throw his first little bit in there. And they're with us. I guess so in 2016, you signed an agreement with Virgin. Mm-hmm. How did you manage to get that? That's a heck of a story. So we, we were going through YC. And they told us kind of a few weeks into the program that you better show up on demo day with sales or your goose is cooked. And, and so I thought, well, crap, I've got eight weeks and my, my sales pipeline is like Delta, Lufthansa, United. Like I'll, I'll be lucky to close any of these guys in eight years, right. let alone in eight weeks. And, and so we thought, well, there are really only two things that could work. We could go after a startup, maybe someone who, who was doing or had done 
all business class subsonic since our, our airplane's all business class supersonic, or we could go after Virgin because you know, Richard Richard is known to have, you know, he tried to buy Concords when they were retired. He's known to have an interest in high-speed flight and he's, he's just crazy enough that maybe he would do something. And, uh, and so we went after both of those paths in parallel and the, up until literally the day before demo day, all we had was an LOI from a startup airline. And I, I remember, I remember doing the practice pitch with, with Michael Siebel and, and he was like, Blake, you sound like you're completely full of shit. Do you have anything that's real? Like this air is this airplane doesn't sound real. Your LOI is from like a startup. If that's not real, like show me something that makes me think you're anything other than just hot air here. And uh, but you know along the way we had um, and we, last thing we learned from that is to be really concrete in the pitch. Like the final demo day pitch was here's the engine, here's the hangar that we're going to build the airplane in, here's the leading edge of the wing, and just make it super super concrete and tangible because it does sound like you know you know t- today we have an airplane in the hangar. But you know, back then it was like little bits and pieces and a lot of computer renderings and people didn't believe it. But the, the Virgin story, so we had we had started dating Virgin actually a little bit before YC. And some of my team knew some of their teams. So we could walk into Virgin Galactic and and say, hey, you know, instead of saying, hey, who the hell are you? Do you think you built supersonic jets? They'd be like, hey, Joe, good to see you. How you been? So we walked in with a little bit of credibility. And, you know, but they, you know, they were looking for how could they sort of extract the most value from Boom in exchange for supporting us with Richard. And so we realized we did another path to Richard. And this was, this is February of 2016. One of our advisors was the astronaut, Mark Kelly, who was personal friends with, with Richard Branson. And in that month, Virgin Galactic was rolling out their new spaceship. And so what we found was we could write emails from Mark Kelly to Richard Branson and he would send them. Sort of classic, you know, intro ghostwriting kind of kind of technique. And uh, what we basically got a note into Richard that said, "Hey, the Boom guys are going to be in Mojave for the spaceship rollout. You should really meet with them while you're there." And then we emailed our friends at Virgin Galactic, and we're like, "Hey, we're going to see Richard. Can we come to the rollout event?" And so we ended up uh, we ended up crashing the rollout. I, I never actually got my name on the invite list, but we got our 15 minutes with Richard Branson. And, and we, you know, he looked at this and he, you know, we had, a, we had a little wooden model of the airplane that we painted up in virgin colors that we like very reluctantly gave him as a gift because we put so much energy into building this one little handmade model. Uh, and he, you know, he looked at us and he said, well, this is, this is brilliant. Like, I love what you're doing, but like, I'm already like up to here with Virgin Galactic. I can't do two of these things. And we said, well, that's, that's okay. We're not asking you to invest in the company. We're asking when the airplane is delivered, whether you'd like to have the first few with a Virgin logo on the tail. And, uh, and I said, look, if you're, if, if you're willing to raise your hand as an early customer, I'll go get all the capital I need somewhere else. And it turned out that was, that was the angle that worked. And you know, we agreed to do a little bit of manufacturing and test work with Virgin Galactic. And that helped, that helped sort of align interests over there. And then it was literally the day before demo day that we got the email from Virgin that said, okay, we're in and you can announce it. And, uh, and we went from, you know, in that moment, we went from what I, I felt could be the biggest losers of demo day, where you know, it's like these yahoos think they can build supersonic jets and nobody even wants them, to this, this baby little startup just signed a $2 billion deal at Virgin, which, which made demo day go fairly well. In fact, I, I can tell the story of that week because it was a bit of a roller coaster ride. We, we had planned... We'd been in stealth mode at that point. We'd planned to come out of stealth mode the week of demo day. And we'd done an exclusive with Ashley Vance at Bloomberg for the launch story. And if, if you don't know Ashley, he's a great guy. He's the guy who wrote the biography of Elon Musk. And so we thought this will be perfect. 
Ashley will write a very flattering story. And then we'll be like the SpaceX of airplanes. It'll be great. And so we, we invited Ashley out to our hangar in Denver. And we had zero self-awareness about just how fanciful we looked at the time. You know, the, the only thing we had in the hangar was a couple cardboard mock-ups. And so, you know, we let Ashley's team take pictures of me climbing in on the cardboard mock-up. And then the story ran. It was actually a very nice story, but the, the editor got a hold of it. And, and ran it with the headline image of me climbing into a cardboard mock-up of an airplane. And, and the whole thing like ran under the headline of like, this Colorado company thinks it can build supersonic jets. And that, that came out on Monday and it was just cringeworthy. And then Tuesday, we got the Virgin email. And Tuesday night, I stayed up super late doing, doing press interviews. And on Wednesday, we, we relaunched the company. And it became, you know, and then all of a sudden, it was like this other like, oh, I, this is actually credible because Virgin is, Virgin's with it. And I remember the Monday story ended up on Hacker News, and it was uh, the co- you should never read the comments, but I read the comments, uh-huh. and uh, and it was like, haha, what a stupid company! Like, what idiot runs marketing there? Why would they name an airplane company Boom? And don't these Yahoos know that airplanes aren't made out of cardboard? By the way, you know that all of the commenters on Hacker News are, of course, highly qualified pilots themselves, manufacturing F sixteens, F twenty twos, F thirty fives, and <laughs> incredibly qualified to. Uh, to critique someone's attempt to build a better airplane, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no kidding. <laughs> but Wednesday, we the uh, TechCrunch story on the Virgin relationship ended up back on Hacker News, and my my favorite comment, and this one was worth reading, was Monday colon haha what a stupid company. Wednesday colon oh shit, and and then there were these Twitter threads about like you know this is the way to launch a company. It's called the one two punch, and like what brilliant people must have worked in marketing at Boom right. to have planned this. Right, and I was just like, well, you know, you you, you take your luck. Very true. So tell us uh, um, a little bit just about what it's going to be like to fly on this thing. First off, uh, is there going to be Wi-Fi on board? Yes. Uh, super, super fast is, Wi-Fi. Is there internet uh, at that height? Yeah. It's, well, you're actually closer Are to the satellites. For the internet. So it's, so it's slightly better. And in fact, you've got only you know 64 other passengers to share the internet with. So it's going to be a lot faster. And you know, one, of the, one of the things you see with tech on other airplanes. I mean, we've all had that experience of you get aboard an airplane and it's clear the in-flight entertainment system was designed like 10 years ago. And, and the reason is that air, airplanes are long design cycles, uh, going from locking down the size and shape of the airplane to carrying the first passengers. You know, for us, it'll be about an eight-year process on overture. Like we'll, we'll freeze the design end of next year and we'll carry passengers in 2029. And so, you know, it's super long design cycle. And what a lot of companies do, and you see this in the auto world, you see a lot of old hardware companies, is they put software and tech on the same design cycle as fuselage and engines. And the result is by the time something's delivered, it's already obsolete. And so we are, we're deliberately making the airplane modular such that things that can be on shorter design cycles are on shorter design cycles. And so that, you know, the Wi-Fi system and the in-flight entertainment system you know, we, we won't decide for a very long time what those even are. We'll leave space and power for them and whatnot. And then we'll go put the latest stuff on board such that, you know, when we hand an airplane to the airlines, it's got the best stuff you can get. And so uh, how large will the seats be? I mean, the Concorde famously was actually pretty uncomfortable to sit in. But, you know, I, I guess people endured for the shorter duration of the flight. Is the boom strategy similar on the inside or is it different? No, it's, it's different. So it's an all business class kind of setup. And you know, so relative to Concorde, there's been such a huge uh, improvement in what you can do efficiency wise that you spend most of that just on making the tickets cheaper. So a ticket on Concorde was $20,000. 
just not for very many people, not a large market. Uh, you know, we'll be able to get that down by about 75%. And then you take, you still have some budget left over to basically make the interior nicer. And so it'll be a business class style seat. It'll be one of the widest seats out there, a big window, a 25 inch screen in front of you that you can dock your laptop into and actually work on a, work on a big screen if you'd like. The seat seat reclines. It's got five positions. The one thing it doesn't do is lie flat because when the flight is three and a half hours instead of you know seven or eight, you don't need to sleep on an airplane. You can sleep in a real bed before you have to get on board. Right. And what speed will Boom fly at? So we, we think about it in terms of of the flight times more so than the miles per hour. So you know New York to London it'll be three and a half hours instead of six and a half or seven wheels up to wheels down, and that that means you can leave in the morning make a late afternoon or dinner meeting in London and then catch an evening flight back and you arrive in New York in time to tuck your kids into bed uh, that same day. Or across the Pacific today, if you've got a, let's say you've got a Monday morning meeting in Tokyo. Today, you have to leave on Saturday. You get there into day Sunday, Tokyo time. You try to sleep in a hotel room. You wake up the next morning, you try not to sleep in your meeting. And by the time you're back home, the whole thing is taking a minimum of three calendar days. And you better not make any other decisions that week because you're so messed up from the jet lag and the flying that you shouldn't trust your brain. And what you can do when you double the speed of the flights is you actually save entire calendar days. So instead of leaving Saturday, you leave Sunday. You sleep in the best flatbed seat there is, which is the one at home. You leave Sunday morning. You, you arrive Sunday afternoon, say San Francisco time, which is Monday morning, Tokyo time. So you're awake, they're awake. You do a whole day of meetings, catch an overnight flight back. And you're at home 24 hours after you left, and there's no jet lag because you never had to transition time zones. So it's a lot faster. Will you be able to fly in the near term over the continental US, or is that not possible? Not supersonic. So one of the insane things that's a political fallout of Concorde is we literally have a speed limit over land in the US. You know, the, the regulations say, thou shalt not exceed Mach 1. And ostensibly, that's about noise. If it were really about noise, it would have been a noise limit, not a speed limit. And it was, uh, the, the history of this was that Concords uh, was a European project. This was the height of the Cold War. So Concords established by treaty in 1962 between the French and British governments. It's, it's amazing the thing ever flew because, you know, they, they wrote all the documentation in French and in English. They built two factories for the price of four because they couldn't decide where to build it. But it, it, the, to cut to the chase, the Americans didn't have supersonic, the Europeans did. And so we said, we can't have any of that sonic stuff. So we're starting off focusing on routes that are mostly over water. That's actually where most of the opportunity is, because those are where the flights are longest and you get the most benefit from speed up. And then in the second generation, we'll fly over land. You know, in, in a world where you can get from San Francisco to Tokyo faster than you can get from San Francisco to Washington, D.C., like the entire California congressional delegation will you know, beat, down the, beat down the walls at the FAA to get the regulations changed. And so are you going to fly it at 0.999 uh, or are you going to wait for a regulation change? So we will, over land, we will fly at 0.94, which turns out to be the, and that compares to uh, 0.85 on the fastest commercial aircraft today and 0.78 on the typical aircraft you'd actually fly transcontinental today. Right. And at, at 0.94 turns out the, is the fastest you can fly subsonic without risking accidentally going supersonic when there's a gust of wind. Uh-huh. Interesting. Interesting. Spontaneous combustion there. So you yourself have a pilot's rating. You're instrument rated, I believe, right? Are you going to be flying the boom aircraft? Uh, how, how could I not? 
So, so XB1, the answer sadly is no. It's a single seat airplane and our, our test pilots are incredibly credentialed. Our chief test pilot did 200 carrier landings, many at night in an F-18, was an F-18 test pilot. They're one of the first flights of the version two F-18. Our other test pilot's an F-22 test pilot. And, and so, you know, I, I think they might let me taxi it around on the ground, but I don't think they're going to let me fly it. Uh-huh. But Overture will be like any, in principle, it won't be more difficult to fly than a Boeing or Airbus. And uh, I can't, I can't imagine not getting my turn at the controls. Will there be a, you know, flight simulator 2020 is coming out. Is there going to be a boom model for FF 2020? Let's just say that's a really interesting idea. Okay, great. We're excited. I grew up playing a lot of FS, except if there was a boom. And so when is the, I guess, baby boom going to fly? And, and then when is real boom going to fly? Yeah. So, so if you walk out in the hangar today, what, what you see is an airplane that is literally nine business days away from complete. Like it's, it's right, right up against the finish line. And like the landing gear just went in, the engines went in. The, I think they're putting the canopy on the cockpit later today. And, uh, and then it goes to the paint shop and we'll, and we'll reveal the, reveal the XB1, you know, on its own wheels on October 7th. And so I'll, I'll plug this for a second. If you go to boomsupersonic.com plus XB1, you can sign up for the rollout event and be, be amongst the first to see it. And so that'll, that'll roll out in October. And after that, we go into ground testing. And so you, uh, you want to debug everything you can on the ground before you go fly it. Of course, if, you know, if, if, software, if software crashes, it's annoying. If an airplane crashes, people get hurt. Right. So you, you shake out all the bugs you can on the ground. We'll be Mach 1 by the end of next year in the air. And, and then Overture is uh, about five years behind XB1. So Overture will roll out in 2025. It'll be in flight test in 26. Typically, subsonic aircraft require about two years of flight test to certify with the regulators. We're expecting more like four on Overture just because it's more, it's more complex. And I think the safety bar is going to go up and on the heels of the, the 737 MAX debacle. So first passengers by the end of the decade. And uh, in the early 2030s, we'll be, we'll be building these things as fast as we can and getting them out there for people to fly on. And, and so the Concorde took the combined effort of uh, the two largest, well, two of the largest European economies, mm-hmm. um, you know, billions and billions of dollars, maybe fractions, small fractions of GDP. You know, will Boom need kind of a similar amount of capex investment, and and if not, kind of why, basically? So, so fortunately, the answer is no. It, it turns out when you have unlimited government financing, you tend to use it, right? And and so, you know, Apollo, Apollo, and Concorde really share that same historical narrative. You know, both 1960s both uh, Cold War era kind of glory projects where the goal was to show you could do something technologically impressive with the entire resources of a country. And you, you can, but it turns out that when you do that, it's a bridge to nowhere. And if you, today, if you want a lunar lander or a supersonic airliner, you got to go to a museum rather than look up in the skies. And, uh, and so they had, they had no economic constraints. And that, that was, in my view, that was a bad thing because they didn't have to build a sustainable economic model. They didn't have to learn how to operate with limited resources. And so, you know, 50 years later, you know, one, we get to stand on their shoulders. We also get to leverage a lot of what's been developed elsewhere in the industry. And this, this turns it into a, you know, an engineering and safety testing effort, not a invent new technology from scratch effort. Mm-hmm. And so we estimate we're going to need about three quarters of a billion in equity uh, before IPO. 
which is it's a lot of money, but it's an obtainable amount of money. And we deliberately structure uh, our technical and commercial milestones relative to our financing milestones so we can get the valuation of the company up and get access to the capital we need without diluting out everybody. So my my, my goal there is to make John Collison very happy on the day of IPO. Are you going to let John Collison fly boom? Or are you going to deny his request? <laughs> yes, we're going, to be, we're going to be huge jerks about that. Yeah. So that's, that's how we like to roll. Very interesting. And so Overture is the proper aircraft, or is that still a scale model compared to what the proper aircraft? Uh, no, Overture is full scale. Uh, it's the uh, it's the first full scale airplane. So that that's what you see behind me here. It's uh, sixty five to eighty eight seats, depending on uh, how close you put them together, and and that is that's our first airplane. And what what happens after Overture is is actually pretty interesting. Um, if you look back at history, so I, you, you and I, and I, I imagine most of the people who are watching now are are too young to have lived through a speed up. So the last time we did was late 1950s, early 1960s, when we went from props to jets. And uh, what happened then was, the, you know, for example, the 16-hour flight from San Francisco to Honolulu turned into a, a six- or seven-hour flight that it is today. You might think, like, oh, people would spend less time on airplanes, but they actually spent more time on airplanes because it was more worth going places, and places were more accessible. And right. uh, you know, travel to Hawaii went up sixfold in the first 10 years of the jet aid. And so if we see the same thing happen with supersonic, which I, I think we will, you know, we're going to find that when, you know, when Sydney is eight hours away, not 16 hours away, uh, we, we might choose to go down under more often. And, uh, and so I think you'll see an explosion in travel just as that time barrier. It's not the speed barrier that matters. It's the time barrier. Break the time barrier, there's going to be more travel. And then what we'll find is this you know, 65-seater is way too small. And we'll need to build a second-generation aircraft that is larger. And it turns out when you go larger, this is you know, this is true subsonic, but it's even more true supersonic. You can make the aircraft significantly more efficient. Mm-hmm. And so think of it as you know t- still two pilots, but more passengers. Think of it as the, the volume of the aircraft is cubic with its dimension, but the surface area is only quadratic, which means as you go bigger, there's less skin friction drag per uh, per passenger. Moreover, there's some other things aerodynamically that don't work on a small airplane, but they work in a big airplane. And so that lets you build a second-generation aircraft that's larger, therefore it's more efficient, therefore it can have more range, higher speed, and lower fares, all of which is going to translate into more people flying, which will translate to a third-generation aircraft that's larger and more efficient and, and so forth. As you kick off this like virtuous cycle that we haven't had for half a century in aviation, where uh, speed-ups beget economy, beget uh, speed-ups. And so uh, we'll see you know, uh, Overture 2 and Overture 3 uh, it'll be larger. They'll be more efficient. There'll be new more new technology on them. And I, I think within our lifetimes, we're going to find that the the cheapest fare is the fastest fare. And and if that sounds just like impossibly good to believe, too good to believe, like remember that the propeller flights to Hawaii don't exist anymore. That's because the same thing already happened. Yes, it, very interesting. And and on the topic of aerodynamics, uh, the Concorde obviously was famous for its crooked nose. Why do away with that design? What did they get wrong there? Yeah. Well, um, so do, do you know do you know why they had the the droop nose? I assume it was because it was only sufficiently aerodynamic at high speed or something. Not exactly. I mean, you do, you do actually want the the pointy high nose for high speed, but the reason they had to lower it was so the pilots could see the runway to land. I see. Like they literally couldn't see over the nose of the aircraft because it was too long and too long and pointy. And XB one and Overture also have long pointy noses, 
but but today we have this amazing thing called a camera uh-huh. uh, and a retina display. And uh, this this is what we're doing in XB1. Literally, the the top half of the pilot's primary display has a if there's like camera toggle button you can hit, and it flips over, and you get all your flight controls overlaid on top of what is a virtual window through the nose of the airplane. And so you get you get better runway visibility than you get with with a traditional subsonic cockpit. And you don't have all the complexity and failure modes and weight of this this moving nose mechanism. So it, sa- it saves a bunch of weight off the aircraft. And it, it, weight is uh, weight is evil on airplanes. Whenever whenever the airplane gets heavier, it needs more thrust to hold it up. Uh, that means it needs more gas. The gas weighs something. Then the wings have to get bigger, and the engines have to get bigger, and it becomes this like vicious cycle. Like one one pound of additional empty weight translates into roughly three pounds of total airplane weight just because you have to carry more fuel. It's really, really bad. And, and so anything you can do that get weight, gets weight out of the airplane uh, really helps you. And so, so we'll wave goodbye to the, the droop nose. Good rhinoplasty upgrade. <laughs> it, uh, it turns out the nose design is really important. It's, it's essential to the whole airplane working. So the way a, a traditional airplane flies is you've got these uh, sort of your teardrop-shaped wings, right? And the, that shape serves to accelerate the air over the wing relative to the way air under the wing. You get a pressure delta, therefore lift, and you can, you can land with the nose just up a little bit. But a delta wing aircraft, uh, if you look at the, the wing area, there's a lot less wing area than there is on a subsonic aircraft. It's a teeny tiny, like unbelievably small wing. And that works in supersonic speeds because you're going so fast, you get a lot of airflow over the wing. But in subsonic speeds, the physics are actually completely different. You come in with the nose high and, and you're in what's called vortex lift. So the, the nose plus the leading edge of the wing generate this swirling airflow. And again, Bernoulli's principle kicks in. The, the higher velocity swirling air generates a lower pressure region. That generates low pressure above the wing relative to uh, below the wing and the delta pressure gives you lift. But what's interesting is those vortices can really mess with you if you don't get them exactly right. And so there's a, there's a vortex that comes off the, the nose of the airplane, again, sort of a low pressure region. And if you are in, we've probably all seen those YouTube videos where it's like airplanes landing sideways and crosswinds, part of the testing. And so you have to worry about those cases. And, and what, we, what we found was one of the hardest things to get right aerodynamically was that nose vortex would go, so that low pressure region would go across the fuselage of the airplane and then it would sit next to the vertical tail and it, when you're kind of crabbed into the wind. And what your tail is supposed to do is have a, a high-pressure region there that's going to cause the tail to weather vane the whole airplane get it right. straight again. Right. But with the low-pressure region in the wrong place, when you go sideways a little bit, it would just want to go, it, it, it want to go swap ends on you. And so it's, it's what we call in aviation, not a good day. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and so we, we had to do, you were talking about rhinoplasty. We, we went through, uh, we, we called it giving the airplane a nose job. We went through many iterations of nose. And if you look at the, the XB1 nose, it's, it's subtle, but the whole thing is like flattened a little bit. It's tapered in a really complex way. Yeah, and then it gets that, that, nose geom- that nose vortex to be just right. Beautiful. Beautiful. Now on the topic of speed, obviously something that mad, it strikes me that something that matters for your project is the engine of the airplane itself. I believe you guys somehow managed to convince Rolls-Royce to build for you. How, how did that happen? Yeah, so this was, this was a breakthrough moment that happened just a few weeks ago where we, we got Rolls-Royce to speak publicly that they're working on an engine design for Overture, which is, which is huge because with, without an engine, uh, airplanes don't, they don't really fly. Um, <laughs> yeah. It becomes a very expensive glider 
Uh, Flintstone aircraft. Right, exactly. So, and, and this is, uh, I'll tell you the story of this. It's one of the things I'm most proud of, and it, it literally went back five years. So we, we knew, I think, I think I had my first call with Rolls-Royce before I'd actually onboarded the first employee. It was literally like me and a couple of advisors in Rolls-Royce starting to talk about engines. So we knew, we knew it'd be the long pole in the tent. And for, and we look at that, if you look at that relationship over five years, there were a, a couple of key inflection points where we were able to like really move it forward. And I, I can tell some of those stories because they are, uh, I don't I think they're just fun stories. Uh, one was what, around the time we were raising our, raising our series A. And, and so at this point we'd, we'd raised a few million dollars in seed funding, but not enough to build an airplane or to kind of do anything interesting. And, you know, our, our secret fear was that this, this company would come and go without ever having built anything real. And so, and so we're like, well, how do we raise, you know, 30 odd million dollars to go build a supersonic jet? And, you know, and we had, we had potential investors and the, the smart ones are asking questions like who's going to build the engine. We, you know, we were able to get phone calls with Rolls-Royce and of course they would say who in the world is investing in this company. And they, they all wanted to talk to each other. And so what we ended up doing was uh, we threw a big party. We built a, a full mock-up of XB1 out of styrofoam and, and hard coat. We basically bet the company on it. We spent a non-trail percentage of all the money we had in the bank to go build this mock-up and, and throw a party. And we invited everyone we could think of. You know, so we invited Rolls-Royce and GE, and we invited all the airlines we could get to come, and we invited prospective investors, and we invited half a dozen former Concorde pilots and engineers that we could find. Because we were like, how can we, how can we add like maximum credibility to this, you know, unveiling of a paperweight? And so we, it was, so we threw a big party, and it, and we, you know, we very proudly said, this is XB1 in mock-up form, and people were, people were excited by it, you know. And then the next day, we used for BizDev, and so we had, we had prospective Series A investors, and we had, uh, we had Rolls Royce, and we took a deep breath, and we said, okay, Rolls, would you be willing to do us a solid and meet with some of these investors and tell them why, why you like Boom? Uh, while you flew across the pond to to have this conversation, and then we and then we went to the investors and we said, well, we we understand you like to add value. Can you show that to us by by telling uh, telling Rolls Royce why why you think this is a really interesting company to fund? And then we we kind of held our breath and we put them in a conference room together and basically watched as they closed each other. And so that and that uh, really accelerated. You know, it made our Series A happen and it really accelerated engagement we have with Rolls. And then, so that's that's inflection point number one, and that that got us to the point of like a little bit of technical work and like regular quarterly meetings did not get us an engine, right? And, and we were trying to figure out how do you get to the next piece of it. And the next next inflection point was in early 2018, and our our technical contact over at Rolls invited me to give the Royal Aeronautical Society Jeff Wild lecture, which is this like it's like a real honor to do this. Like usually, it's like the head of Gulfstream or somebody. Uh, somebody really impressive that gets to give this talk. And it's ostensibly at the Royal Aeronautical Society in, in Derby, but it's actually hosted at Rolls-Royce. And in, in reality, it, the audience is 300 Rolls-Royce employees and like five people from the public. And so I thought, well, ha, this is, this is my chance to pitch 300 Rolls-Royce employees all in one go. And, and my thought was, let me, let me see if I can inspire them such that if if for some reason they, they don't want to do this with us, that they will then have a morale problem on their hands. And so I got up and I told the boom story and I talked about how small numbers of people can change the world if they're willing to be seen as crazy. And and then after after it went over it went over fairly well. And then that that night I uh, had dinner with the head of strategy of the company. He was kind of the key decision maker on what what new things they'll go do. 
and uh, it was this, you know very traditional business dinner, you know, like you'd expect. And at the end of it, I said, "Well, let's go for a walk." And he's like, "What?" I was like, "Let's get outside. Let's go for a walk." And all of a sudden, there's just something magical about walking meetings and something magical about walking biz dev. Because all of a sudden, people get way more candid and they ask you the questions that they really have on their mind. Like I remember he asked me, "So what, what do you really want from Rolls Royce? Do you want us to put out a press release so you can fundraise?" You want us to invest in your company? Like, what do you what do you want us to do? And I said, well, I've heard you're in the jet engine business, and I'd love for you to build us some jet engines. And this was a oh moment for them because they they realized that we were were dead serious about actually doing this, not just like looking to build something cute that Boeing buy. And after after that, the, again, the engagement went through a step change, and then it got to a got to a point where we would regularly get our engineering teams together, regularly get our business teams together, and we got to a point where. They had confidence in us on the business side. They had confidence in us on the, the technology side. They, they knew they actually had an engine design that would work. And, uh, and then we were able to get that across the finish line for an announcement, like I said, just a couple of weeks ago. It strikes me that others, if there's one lesson here, it's that Blake getting dinner is a great idea. It seemed like it worked with John. It seemed like it worked with Rolls-Royce. <laughs> um, right. So, so it turns out the secret to success is, is eat. How much? Yeah, exactly. How? What are you putting in their drinks? There's, there's a, there's a, we're being tongue in cheek about it, but there's like a real point there. Yeah. Uh, like people get people people get very guarded in conference rooms, uh, but informal settings brings out people's humanity. And this is this is one of the reasons why Zoom is never going to replace travel. Yes, is you you lose all the informal interaction and you lose you know, something like half of half of the actual communication content. And so get, getting people in informal environments, making it, uh, making it disarming, inspiring candor, or being candid yourself is really important for making some of these key things happen. And, and when in-flight entertainment started in 2000 and maybe six, seven, eight, there was a flurry of activity around letting people in airplane message each other. Is Boom going to have IRC on the airplane? Boom going to have IRC on the airplane. I, I, have, I have no idea. <laughs> What, what what will the food service be just over three hours? I mean, are you guys just going to serve coffee or, or is there a quick uh, caviar service plan? <laughs> so it's it's up to the airlines, obviously, because you know, we're, we're, we're putting good galleys in there where, uh, where they can go do whatever they want to do. But it's, it's an interesting contrast between what Overture will be and what Concord was. So uh, on Concord, they had a gigantic mock meter, a huge screen in the front of the airplane. I went through one. The captain would get on the, the PA and congratulate everyone for being supersonic. And they'd come around with champagne and caviar and the whole airplane would kind of have a toast. And uh, you know, I imagine the first few overture flights will probably be like that. But I, I'm looking forward to the day when passengers find that annoying. Right. They just want to get, you know, it's commonplace and they just want to get back to their book or their movie or whatever, whatever work they were doing. And, uh, and when, when supersonic is unexciting, then we know we've won. Yeah. One thing I'm curious to, to hear you just expand on is I imagine before you started signing contracts with airlines, the idea of vertically integrating must have come about quite a bit. I imagine also investors were interested in it. How did you think about potentially doing that, being the airline, being the first, I guess, manufacturer to also be the airline? And why did you decide not to go down that path? Yeah, well, it was actually... So I, when I told the, the origin story of Boom earlier, I, I skipped a step. Is that the truth was I didn't have the courage to look at supersonic in the first go, I, but I could I could uh, brace the idea of building an airline, and so the first first week or two in aviation was modeling out what would be the best airline you can build with today's airplanes, 
and and I got down path with that. I concluded there was just no durable differentiation. Like it was too, if you're building off of somebody else's airplane, you know, ultimately your competitors could just go copy whatever your innovative service concept was, or they'd throw the regulators at you and and you know, hamstring your ability to be streamlined. And so so boom. So I thought, okay, well, it, this this model actually needs a better airplane to succeed. And so we got our start planning to be vertically integrated, uh, airline and airplane. And it turns out that, well, that, that it's a very exciting idea because there are innovations you can deliver when you simultaneously control airplane, airline operation, and airport. Like, you know, if, if, if anyone on this call thinks for like 30 seconds about how baggage handling could be better, if you started from a clean sheet of paper, you can change all those things. You, you could imagine things a lot better than the, like, the crazy baggage system we have today. But the, the challenge turns out to be that it's much, much harder to bootstrap the business. Investors want to know that you've got product market fit. The customers really want it, and you can't you can't pre-sell tickets to the flying public fifteen years out. Moreover, suppliers don't buy it. Like you have to convince the Rolls Royces of the world that this is real, and uh, having airlines is part of how you do that. And then there are a lot of other challenges. Like air, airlines are a hard business in their own right, and uh, we got convinced let's do one hard thing at a time. Supersonic jets jets hard enough. You don't have to go build a, a global network as well. And, and the, the airline industry is also it's very it's very balkanized. We have a small number of airlines kind of in each major geography. We don't really have a global airline. And the, the reason for that is that there are in, in, you know, air, airlines are tied up, aviation is tied up with national prestige kind of around the globe. And so you, know, you have countries who have their flag carriers. And you know, if you want to go, for example, set up shop with your own airline in Dubai, yes. uh, my, my expectation is the government would say, well, that's very nice, but we already have that. It's called Emirates. Yes, um, and so you you uh, in practice you would end up with all these like market entry challenges, and so you you want to partner with great airlines for a bunch of reasons. You mentioned earlier on you had a whole list of ideas you were contemplating before you started Boom. <laughs> what do you kind of think is the boom of today? You know, what would you be working on if not Boom? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, I have this deep belief that there are more interesting, important problems in the, the world than kind of people to go work on them, or at least people people choosing to work on them. Uh, like you tend to get told in Silicon Valley that if you have a good idea, there are half a dozen uh, high quality teams already working on it. That the like, law of large numbers applies to startups. And I just I think it's just not true. I don't think it's true in tech. And it's definitely not true outside of tech. Some of the most important problems are sitting in plain view, just waiting, you know, waiting for someone to lock onto them. The morass that is air transportation today, like we all experience it. But prior prior to boom, like no one was really working on it. And I think there are there there are many other things that are like that. Like I'll give a couple of my 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 pet favorite ones that I wish maybe someone on this call will go go tackle. We've all had that experience where we're sitting in a traffic light waiting to go. And there's actually no one in the intersection because the light's in the wrong state. Right, and you know, if we have any hope of building autonomous vehicles, couldn't we at least build smart traffic lights that would, where each intersection would network to the one over, and they would know where the cars are coming, and they would, if someone's about to run the light, they actually wouldn't turn the other one green, so there couldn't be a, a crash. And I think you could actually save a lot of time on the ground. And there are there are other things that are like that. Like I, a while ago, I was like, okay, whatever, I'm stuck in traffic, I have to think about how to make traffic better. But there are things like that that are just massive problems hiding in plain sight where there's just an opportunity for a huge breakthrough. It doesn't have to be technologically sophisticated. It just has to be locked onto the right problem. I like that. How would, how would you pitch that? Something like jaywalking as a service or uh, running red lights. Yeah. 
there's a there's there's a killer model on this that actually makes it a multi-billion dollar business that I'll I'll uh, I'll keep that to myself for right now. Well, people can find you and reach out to you and 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 maybe you can give them that secret that she's yeah. very interesting. Okay. One question we got from from someone listening that I thought was interesting is you're in Denver, obviously. Why are you in Denver? Is it because of marijuana? Are there other reasons that <laughs> the altitude so, so when, I, when I first told my friends, I first posted on Facebook that I'm moving to moving to Colorado to start a new company that would be better in Colorado. Everyone was like, "Oh, you're going into marijuana," and I was like, "No, no, no, guys, it's a different kind of getting high." Going exactly. Oh man, I was going to make that joke. Great, well done. <laughs> so the reality is, so aviation is very spread out relative to tech, and if you want to go, it was clear from day you know day one that. A necessary ingredient in the success story, which, by the way, I think it's I think it's really helpful to go imagine your success story with somebody else doing it, and like think about what that history is going to go like, and then that becomes your strategic plan. But I, we can come back to that if it's interesting. But so it was very clear that we'd have to have a dream team, and you'd have to go collect all those humans in one place because they're they're very spread out today, and uh, and then so it becomes well, where where is the best place to go collect great people? And where do you have a sufficiently low kind of cost of living, sufficiently low cost of real estate that the whole thing is you know, financially more tractable? And we, I, I collected the first kind of half a dozen people to be the first, you know, first couple employees in the company. And at the time, I thought the right answer was going to be Long Beach. We were going to go buy the, the Boeing C-17 plant that was shutting down, kind of the way Tesla bought the NUMI plant that GM and Toyota had shut down. And and it turns out that everyone who wants to live in Long Beach already lives in Long Beach. And you, know, you say, how do you want to move to Long Beach and work on supersonic jets? You can just, you can just see the, the energy like drain out of their faces. And we said, well, okay, well, where would you move to, to work on this? And people were like, how about Denver? And uh, it turns out people love Colorado. Cost, uh, cost of living is reasonable. If you come from San Francisco, it feels free. You've got mountains. You've got all kinds of outdoors things. You've got great schools. You've got and this was important to us. You, you've got good experiences for a large range of demographics, whether you're, you're single and you want a single scene or you, you, you've got kids and you care about schools or you'd rather kind of be out of a rural environment and have more land. Like All of that is possible within 30 minutes of, of Boom Headquarters. And so if you're, if you're optimizing for talent and your talent starts out diffuse, you, you pick a place where the, the talent will be happy to concentrate. Right. That's very interesting. And it does seem like you timed this a little bit early. As you know, there's a large exodus, purported exodus. We'll see what actually happens yeah. so far. I think it's more of a retirement plan. <laughs> but uh, there's a purported exodus from some of the coastal states. I mean, everyone always declares, you know, if X happens, like I'm moving to Canada or I'm moving out of California or whatever, then the, uh, the reality of it often seems to be very muted. I think just like the body overreacting to COVID with a cytokine storm, there's a bit of a societal one. And, and uh, <laughs> you know, Blake, this is really cool. I do think you are building one of the most inspiring startups of the decade. I cannot wait to use it. I do not want to fly it. So, but, but I would love to see it in Flight Simulator. So do, do let us know if you can make that happen. I think this is pretty inspiring. You know, we have a lot of people at Pioneer who are working. A lot of people are working on very tractable problems where you can demonstrate progress early on. Others are working on slightly more moonshotty things. And I find in the moonshot world, you have kind of earnest moonshot people that are very excited about kind of pragmatic approaches like you were counterpositioned against 
status-seeking moonshot people who are very interested in working on something big because yeah. it will attract attention from people they admire. And I think it's very important to have people like you to counterbalance against the black hole of those other TED Talker status maximizers. So uh, okay. I very kind of you. I appreciate. Uh, yeah, doers plus moonshot. I think is a good combo. It's a good combination. There, there is something. There is something special to picking something that inspires other people. Yes. And, and in my experience, the best way to do that is to pick something that inspires yourself, because then you, you you become contagious about it. And and when you're and when you're in that mode, you can collect great people who will want to go help you make it happen. I think that's how you make a moonshot actually happen. Is you, you have to you have to collect the talent. Bat signal. Yeah, the bat signal. The founder raises the bat signal. In many ways, that's maybe their only job. Pretty true. Well, thanks again. And I, I do hope we get a chance to meet soon. And, and maybe I'll see you at the unveiling. I don't know. Uh, well, that would, be, that would be great. We have a flight simulator here that you can fly. Great. So yeah. uh, we'll be happy to host you out here in Denver and let you push forward on the throttle. Would be great to ascend to heights in Denver of all kinds. <laughs> all right. All right. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you again. Bye-bye, everyone.